Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. I am the solo female host of this book podcast, where I use my university fiction teaching credentials to plunge into the underrated works of Stephen King and unearth all the writing magic that has been unexplored and overlooked. And today, my returning distinguished guest, horror author Jamie Stewart, greatly contributes to enhancing my knowledge of King, as well as the writing craft and other wonderfully insightful viewpoints on past King novels that hadn't yet crossed my path. For those of you who have been hanging out with the show a little while, I offered a delectable preview of my rich conversation with Jamie a few weeks back, so if you haven't heard it, please head back to part one and get caught up on our initial constant reader interview questions. But today is part two of the fabulous chunk of time I spent with Jamie discussing King villains, supporting characters, his impression of the Dark Tower, as well as some of our mutual favorite underrated titles and why they all need to be mainstream right now. If you haven't yet listened to part one, Aside from being a writer himself, Jamie has accomplished the astronomical feat of reading every single King work there is, minus one or two, released in the last year or so, with multiple rereads attached to them. And he's actually in the middle of a chronological reread of the entire King catalog at the moment, where he's currently chipping away at one of my favorite crazy town book picks, 2006's Lisey Story, having just finished Cell. Without further ado, please listen to part two of my amazing conversation with horror author and king connoisseur, Jamie Stewart. All right, everyone, welcome Jamie Stewart back to the show. Thank you, Jamie, for hanging out with us yet again. Let us begin our part two coverage. Thank you for having me back. So great to be with you once more. We're going to pick up right where we left off. For anyone who needs a refresher, you can jump back to my part one with Jamie, where we dabbled in some of our favorite underrated works, as well as Jamie's first Stephen King novel, which was The Shining at the age of 13. But once more, we must bow down to the amazing accomplishments of Mr. Stewart, who has read all of Stephen King's works, and he's on a second chronological read. It's amazing. So... I want to kick off this secondary constant reader interview with a big question. Okay. Stephen King villains, my friend. Do you have a favorite or favorites? Immediate one that pops into mind is Pennywise. I mean, it's just so incredible as a villain. And not because of the the sort of, wow, he can be anything. That's kind of like a cheat answer, isn't it, to say Pennywise? Because he can be any villain. But I just sort of love that it's your personal fear you know I, I the moment I think of it I remember the scene with Richie and Bill where they climb underneath into the basement of Neibolt Street and um, the werewolf comes down the steps to kill them and I just thought that and that was so awesome and par and 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 like striking for a child because you know because I was 13 when I was reading it and every other sort of sort of semi scary or semi horror uh, sort of genre thing for someone my age was you know as soon as the kids are in the light or as soon as the good guys in the light you're safe but it chases them down the street in while the sun's setting in broad daylight this werewolf is chasing these kids on a bike down the street and you're like 
and there, I think there's a bit where like he, they feel the air of their cl- his claws brushing past them. Just they just you know uh, get out of the just save themselves by like an inch. And I just sort of um, that sort of was again a sort of mind uh, expanding moment of these monsters can be in daylight, and you're not really ever safe from them. And I think that's I always return to it for that reason. You know, it gets it gets you when you're alone. It gets you when you're vulnerable. So it's a big one for me. I love it. I'm so glad that you mentioned the daylight because that's such a childhood (laughs) source of hope that we cling to. Like if I can just hang on till morning or wait until the sunshine, I'll be safe. And that's not how Pennywise rolls. No, that's not how he rolls. The part one interview we did, we talked a little about it about uh, the dead zone. And I know a lot of people love, or well, hate and love Greg Stilson. He's the one that stands out. But for me, Frank Dodd always frightened me so much more as a villain. I just, there's something about him. He's only in it for a chapter, but it's just, just such, there's such a repulsion because you, you get his kind of narrative from his, his own head. So you're in the head of a very sick individual. And it just, it, there's sort of, a great lack of humanity that King manages to write in that character that you feel like this guy is not attached to the human race in any way, at least emotionally. He's one that always gives me chills to sort of go back and see. I find it very amazing that it's such a small part of that book, but it it strikes me every time how Frank Dodd is so fucking scary. (laughs) (laughs) He grossed me out in a very like everything in me wanted to get away from that person when I was reading The Dead Zone. He is irredeemable and grotesque and for being written when The Dead Zone was shockingly graphic and frightening for sure. Yeah. And the fact that he exists in the public eye, you were talking about daylight, he exists as a cop in this community, well-loved, well-known, and you're just like, it's all a mask. You know, when it when it comes out, you find out it's just been a mask all along. Yeah, that's one that stands out to me. Is You can see me looking over the camera, but all my king are sitting on my shelf, so I'm looking down the, the spines to see if anyone else stands out. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up Frank Dodd, because you're right, he really kind of falls into the shadows a little bit because Stilson really grabs the throat of the reader as the main villain of the dead zone and he's fantastic and really has stood the test of time Stilson (laughs) has but Frank Dodd is like and I have not read Cujo but is it hinted at or is Cujo is I heard a thing I heard a rumor from other constant readers that is the spirit of the deceased Frank Dodd inside Cujo? Is that a spoiler? It's it's open to your interpretation as a reader, I think very much so. There is elements of, there's characters that have experienced the Frank Dodd situation that have lived through the dead zone and are on the other side of it. And while they're in the situation that's in Cujo, they sort of remark about how much this is like Dodd, Dodd's return sort of thing. And there is an element of that. And then I think if you jump to Needle Flings, I think it's it's very heavily hinted that it's Frank Dodge and Cujo are almost one uh, in a very, very creepy scene. I find it creepy even in uh, Needful Things where there's a bit where uh, a character goes out to the farm where Cujo is set and, and has to dig something up. And there's this sort of shadow-like specter of Cujo sort of there. So 
it's open to your turn. I don't want to say anymore because if you haven't read it, I don't want to spoil it for you. Okay. But uh, yeah. I'm thankful, but at the same time, I'm like, just tell me, but I understand it's probably best. It's best for me to to discover that in my my reading time. So hopefully soon. So my next question is jumping over to the King collection as a whole. And because you've made your way through all of them at least once, some twice, Salem's Lot six times, love it. <laughs> yeah. What do you feel is the worst King book for you where it's just a chore slash pain to get through? Or does one exist? The answer that would always come to me is Rage. But I kind of feel that's unfair because it's such an early book published after King had had success, but it was written long before that. So, you know, it wasn't something that he wrote after, you know, having success with Carrie and Salem's Lot and all that stuff and then published. It was something that was rejected and should have perhaps stayed rejected. And the reason for that is Charlie Decker, who's the main character and also villain of that story. It's very tough, I feel, reading from his perspective because his thoughts are like bile. It's just so gross. And we're talking about Frank Dodd, but this is like 100 and 200 pages of being in Frank Dodd-like head, this very sick individual who needs therapy, who needs help, who views himself above everyone else and is very smarmy. I refer to books, certain books of King that give me sort of a headache. And I actually felt very nauseous reading those sort of passages, which is in way a good sign of like how good king is a writer because that is you know intentional he is a sick person and a grotesquely sadistic and so it doesn't feel easy reading that book i view that as kind of my least favorite because it's just one that i have no we're talking pennywise being a favorite but pennywise does awful things in it you know really really awful things but you still enjoy the book rage just for me there isn't an enjoyment level there but again i feel that's kind of like a cop-out answer so i would say also end of watch for me is not a favorite of mine and the reason being that um, I find that book to follow a formula in terms of like the, the journey of the hero. And it just felt very sort of not really unique or um, inspired in terms of its story. Sorry, friend of watch film. <laughs> <laughs> I could get on board with that. I, I think that two things I love. Oh, I love the layers you bring forth, Jamie. So regarding End of Watch, I can agree with that. And what's fascinating about the Mr. Mercedes trilogy is how different Finders Keepers is <laughs> to yes. the whole thing. And I feel a lot of us really love that one. But it's such a different little kitten in the litter. Yeah, it's almost like it's very hodge light like he's taken away those characters and you know given a separate story and they kind of filter into it it's it's a new character's entirely story for themselves and they just happen to be featuring in it and i think that re works really well i love finders keepers it was one i really enjoyed uh, mr mercedes i enjoyed too um i just find it a bit long but it's not like an awful book i don't find it to be an awful book and i'm not i wasn't put off by king going and doing crime you know i think any author if they're inspired by something they should certainly write the book they want to write but end of watch for me again it was we talked about joyland and marketing problems um when the mercedes trilogy came out we were told this is king doing you know hard-boiled crime but in end of watch he goes back to just like superhuman powers and all that stuff and that's why i kind of felt like he's going back to that because perhaps he couldn't fully sustain the three book sort of idea of a hard-boiled crime trilogy and so for me it was just a bit sort of 
again, I haven't read it since I've um, since the first read of it, uh, and I'll encounter it again. So maybe my opinion will change, but I really struggled to read that book. Yeah, totally fair. I did want to jump back to the Charlie Decker character you mentioned. I haven't read Rage. It is way down on the list for me. Like, okay. might be the last <laughs> thing I ever read before the final dirt nap because I don't have a desire to read it at this time in my life. However, you reminded me of a character who we spend a lot of time in his head from Rose Matter, Norman Daniels, who is... Mm a depraved, disgusting individual who I hate with the fire of a thousand suns. <laughs> was Charlie Decker like him? Yeah, Charlie Decker's like him, but the thing is Rose Matter has the light with Rose. You have the ability to go in Rose's head and see all the lovely things that she's experiencing as a woman who's sort of like away from this abusive character. But in Rage, you don't get that. You just get Charlie's point of view. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> So it's this, yeah, you're that perfect. That's a great actual thing that you've pulled out of the bag because that is what it's like. It's like re reading Rose Ma Matter, but only the Norman bits. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I would die, Jamie. <laughs> that sounds I mean, like instant brain death. Yeah, he is such a, like, in some ways you have to give it applaud because it's sort of like those people are, those, you know, the history we know of these people that have abused, you know, other people in life and they do it with such a sadistic way. They shouldn't have any sort of, you know, there's an element of they should, shouldn't have any good points. And King just shows Norman as that, as a person who has no virtues, who has no, he's just, he's not a flat, flawed person. He's just evil. But yeah, it's, it's also really bad. <laughs> Good to know. This is so helpful for the future. <laughs> so my next question, we are still in the character realm. I wanted to ask if you have a character from past Stephen King novels you would like to see in a sequel or receive their own standout novel, much like Holly Gibney's getting sometime next year. I know what the answer I know, would normally give to this, but the fact that you brought up Cujo I, I reminded me of something. Um, I really love supporting characters are one of the things I tend to like most. Like when I'm reading a book, it tends to be the I don't really, main character's okay, but I like, oh, I really love the supporting character. So in The Dead Zone and Cujo, I really love George Bannerman. There's just something about him that's sort of so amenable. He's like, he's the person you would could see going down to a pub and having a drink with and just having a good time having a conversation with uh especially the way he's introduced in the dead zone where he's like i love chili and i've got a ulcer but the hell with it i love chili too much i mean that's just so sort of like oh you just want to be the best friend of that type of person <laughs> so i would love to see like a prequel series of like george bannerman living in castle rock before like castle rock went crazy but have the castle rock sort of like Oh, there is something wrong about this town. There is something off. There's evil things attracted here. And just have a, a story from that perspective, I think, would be interesting. Because I just really like that character. And it'd be interesting to see how he is formed. I am remembering George Bannerman. And he was a charmer. He was a real yeah. sort of charming fellow, for sure. I do love when King gives us those sweet people, which we find a lot in the ensemble novels, which the last time we chatted, I think it was off air, you brought up an amazing, brilliant point. I had never thought about it before, <laughs> that every decade we get a huge ensemble cast novel of like 60 to 80 plus characters. 
Yeah, yeah. It is. I, I stand by that. That's absolutely true. The first one is Salem's Lot. The 80s, you get it. And uh, the 90s, you get Needful Things. Uh, and then in the noughties, you get two. You get Black House and you get Under the Dome. And then in the, I don't know, 2010s or whatever we can refer to that, this decade that we just passed, you get Sleeping Beauties. So brilliant. I was like, of course, I would have never observed that. So it works so well. With that, when you speak to a non-Stephen King reader, as there are more of them out there than we would like, (laughs) what recommendations do you send their way, especially because you're plugged in with the indie horror scene? Is there any book that you find yourself suggesting more often than not to a non-King reader? Non-King reader, if, if it's someone that doesn't read horror, I always recommend 11, uh, 22, 63. Yeah. Jim McKee and Joyland would be ones that I would recommend as well because they've got sort of horror light, but they're just really good engrossing reads. And then if you are a horror fan, but you haven't read his stuff, well, you know, I was texting you back and forth. You know, I had I just recently reread Cell and I thought Cell was brilliant. So I would actually really recommend Cell. And I know it's a book that's really like critically panned, but I find it so underrated. Looking back now, you know, years later, realizing that book was written in 2000 or published in 2006. And it's basically America's nightmare in that period post 9-11. You know, you have the whole idea of this cellular pulse that just basically brings the American country down to its knees and back into uh, the dark ages. And it's basically the nightmare that any American had back then because of the, you know, the events of 9-11. And it's just sort of like, I can understand why it was critically panned because it's just too close to the bone, maybe at the time it was published. But like the main characters in that, they go on this journey where they have to track about 100 miles across Maine and and they meet other survivors and basically the, the American population that's left alive is the refugees and the, you know there's all these images of sort of refugee camps and and you know planes crashing into buildings and you know all these things that, that were on the pulse of people's fear back then in the days and you know in the UK where I'm from because we also had our own a terrorist event in you know the 2000s as well there was a bus bomb and you know so we were all you know terrified of that happening here and you know so i think that's why that book is pan but if you go back and read it yeah it's not perfect the characters are a bit one note but for like the journey and the the sort of the the idea that this book is literally on the pulse of the topic at that time period i think it's great i'm so glad to hear that because I've heard from many people, yourself included, that Cell is really worth spending some time with, even though it is really panned quite a bit. So I'm very curious about it because the premise sounds a little uh, run of the mill or moderately lackluster. However, I've heard that there's some gold in there. So I'm actually really looking forward to taking a gander at Cell. Yeah, the thing that I noticed about it was, you know, like when it, when it came out, like I'm a big, massive zombie fan. So King doing zombies was like, because King doesn't really do traditional monsters very much. We have Salem's Lot for vampires. We have the cycle of the werewolf, which is like an illustrated tiny wee thimble of a thing for werewolves. And that's it. But yet he's got 60 books, all horror books in the horror genre. But, you know, he doesn't really tackle a sort of universal monsters as we would describe them, except for like it. So when that came out and it was about zombies, I was just like, this has got to be amazing. But he 
does something really different and unique and has his own take on it. And that's interesting in itself. I feel I didn't appreciate it back then, but I do appreciate now and, and the read I had. Um, so yeah, definitely worth checking out. So we're going to interrupt our scheduled questions for a wild card, just because I'm very, very curious. <laughs> so Mr. Stewart revealed to me that he had begun Lisey's story. Uh, I wanted to ask about that. I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on Lisey's story? Well, you're asking, you're asking that because you know the, the first two times I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about King's style and how he's changed over the years. And I noticed when it hit Bag of Bones, King's writing style became more um, introspective. He became less sort of caring about describing the external world, which he was really, really good at. And I think that those novels, the 70s novels and 80s novels, they show him at his kind of mastery of describing the sort of external world we live in. And then in the 90s, he was getting more involved in the personal headspace of his characters to the point where you you pretty much couldn't picture where they were in a room or anything like that, or even in their house. You, you know, you weren't sort of aware of those surroundings because you were so involved in characters' heads. And as younger reader... I struggle with that. That's, I think, one of the reasons why I didn't like Lisey's story is because it's so, it's like the most introspective he's ever gone. He goes really deep into the head of Lisey Langdon. Uh, For me as a reader, like having a sort of physical knowledge of where the character is, is sort of like a hook for my mind to be like, oh, right now I understand the situation. I understand where they are. Then I can process what they're feeling and how they're feeling. But with uh, this sort of, this developed style he had, that he, he writes this book with. I, I couldn't get onto that when I was a younger person. But now, um, yes, I'm about 120 pages into it. I've just got up the bit where Amanda's gone to hospital and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it much more than what I've previously read. I still struggle with the internal language of the, the husband and wife, which is quite, you know, I understand like I'm a married man. I have an internal language with my wife that no one else would be able to know if I'd said some random thing out loud they would not get this sort of you know a phrase or something means so much i know what he's doing but there's a lot of it in passages sometimes and it gets a bit dense but i'm st- I'm enjoying it much more than um, i previously have on my last reads yay <laughs> oh that's so encouraging that's so encouraging to hear because it took me two times to really yeah. the first time i was like this is a bad drug trip of a book this is absolutely written in code this is too difficult what the hell is going on this is awful yes yeah it's just a, a suck fest the entire first time you read it and then the second time and it starts immediately yeah. that's why i noticed it starts immediately with this internal language which you have no sort of thing to latch on to with what you're completely right it's like what is going on like <laughs> what is going on man and it's it's hard for my heart because I've heard of people, non-King readers, friends have given them this book and said, oh, you've never read Stephen King before. This is a love story. This is not scary. And I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, no. I would not recommend this book to anyone unless they were a hardcore King fan, even though I. <laughs> Correct. Like, why would you do that? You fool. <laughs> So it's the most advanced, polarizing, complex King book I've ever read. But I'm so glad that giving it more than one read, it has opened up for you a little bit. Like the kind of magic that's there, the introspective power. 
Yeah, like that was the same for me with The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. I read it twice and then third time was the charm. I, I didn't like it the first two times. I don't know why uh, for, for such a small book, it was really a struggle to read. And then the third time I flew through that in a day. I just loved the headspace of Trisha. And I really enjoyed that book a lot. And it's actually like really high on my list now compared to what it is surprisingly high. And, and I'll defend that because that was my read on at the time. I don't care. I think it's a great book. Uh, it's really well done. So, yeah, I think rereads are important. That makes my heart so happy because nobody has anything nice to say about Tom Gordon. Do not. Do you think so? <sighs> Unfortunately. And this is sort of the soapbox I find on my episode of The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon is I've noticed women love it a lot and men dismiss it at first, but the ones who spend some time with it do realize it's the best and it's such a little powerhouse it's it so is. powerful absolutely i think though I, an excuse of myself i dismissed it when i was a very young boy and i wanted vampires and you know the overlook hotel in my stephen king books and the, his 90s period was a bit of a troublesome time for me to read through because I struggled with a lot of that. A lot of it went over my head, especially the stuff about domestic violence and stuff and violence to women. But the third time there reading it again, I was just, yeah, it's, it's great. It's really, really fantastic. And, you know, I, I would recommend that to someone who's a parent who would want to get like if they want to sort of introduce their, their child to King and maybe read it through with them. I think that would be a good one to start. Because it's again, it's such an empowering thing. Yes, it's scary, you know, young girl lost in the woods, but she is like this powerhouse that develops this sort of backbone to survive. And it's quite, you know, you really feel for Tricia. I think you really do feel for her. Oh, my heart. <laughs> my heart is so happy to hear that beautiful suggestion. I love that because for me, that book is so philosophically powerful. There is so much quiet philosophy in that and mm. i think trisha might be like a final girl like she just absolutely endures and against all yeah. odds and it's really powerful at the end for me i love the hell out of that book i'm so glad that you appreciate it i get little echoes of gwendy and i almost wonder if that was like the original kind of gwendy book you know because gwendy has gone on to have sequels and stuff I wonder if, if, you know, maybe we would have got Trisha as a sequel or something like that. <gasps> you know, that would have been cool to see her as an older person, like after having developed this thing or gone through this, you know, ordeal. What, who does she mature into? Oh, my goodness. All right. I have a big constant reader bomb. This mm. is the question I lay on the feet of constant readers and we'll see where it goes. Jamie, what are your thoughts about The Dark Tower? Oh, um, so while I love all of King's books, I'm not a massive fan of the Dark Tower series. There are books in it I really do love. Um, the Drawing of the Three, Wizard and Glass. I, I defend Song of Susanna. I feel there's a good book in there. So there is. A lot of people don't like it. but And I understand why, because it's literally a cliffhanger book. So it is. That probably could shape your kind of thoughts on it. But no, um, I'm not the biggest fan of it. I find that um, the stuff that's spent in like the fantasy world, like uh, mid-world and stuff, it's the hardest part for my imagination to latch on to because, again, it doesn't feel like King's being very descriptive or even the sort of the world around him that he's able to describe is sort of real. 
you can tell when he goes into like Maine and when he goes into New York, these are places he's lived and he's been in and he's experienced himself. So he's able to write about them in a, in a sort of a way that is a bit more depth to them, a bit more sort of um, cement to them. So that's always been a problem for me. And I've just recently finished The Dark Tower because as I say, I'm up to set, I've just finished sales. So it, I read the last Dark Tower book a couple of months ago. It was such a mixed bag for me. Because the first half of that book, I really struggle with the last three Dark Tower books because a lot of them feel like they're setting up the end. There's a lot of setup in those books. And I think the first 200 pages of the Dark Tower itself is kind of like trying to clean clean house for everything that's happened in the last six books and then set up the story of the seventh one in a way. So I struggle with that as a reader because I just kind of want my book, my story to just go. Uh, and maybe it's because I've become more critical as I've gotten older, because I have to be really critical of my own writing. And, and I, I am. I always try to look at it from the perspective of like a reader and be like, you wouldn't start a book with 200 pages of tidying up a story that has gone on and then start something completely new. Unless the, the story that you're trying to tidy up directly links in, which you could argue, yes, it does, because it, it gets them to the journey. But just for me, it, it doesn't work. So. I give it about three stars, so it is the, the Dark Tower. Interesting. No, this is great because typically I just find drooling fans, right? Everyone is just obsessed. They call themselves tower junkies. They're just super yeah. obsessed. So I'm kind of like wondering why you feel in your King expertise, there is such passion for it, despite some of the flaws you mentioned. I think the passion might be from the fact that it connects everything, that there is this sort of idea of like an interconnected multiverse within King's universe that's really appealing so that every single book matters. Every single book you read has an effect in some way or other. And it's this idea that sort of they're all in it together, um, I think is one of the reasons. I do think they're well-written books. No, don't get me wrong. You know, like The Drawing of the Three and Wizard and Glass are incredible stories and really fantastic. And it's not that, I have a problem with him being a Western, like Wizard and Glass is like a full on Western story. And I love it for that. I think it's brilliant. Um, it works really well. But when it doesn't work well, it shows. And perhaps that's because the whole series wasn't planned before. And I don't really feel, I feel like it actually works in some ways that each book, the first four are so far apart. The problem I have is when it goes to the fifth, sixth and seventh book, I know he had the car accident and I know he felt he had this great pressure to finish the series. And to me, that felt like it didn't give it the air to breathe that he would normally have given the, some of the stories um, that he's written that maybe require that time frame to breathe to, so he could assert himself in terms of maybe, you know, I need to trim that off a bit or cut that out there or explore this a bit more. Good to know. I am just starting Wizard and Glass for the very first time. Oh, are you? Oh, my goodness. That's the next book on the podcast. Have you started it? Yeah, like eight pages. So oh, <laughs> we're like, we're, we're so fresh. We are just super fresh breaking it in. And I'm very excited. I'm happy to be back with the quartet. And word on the street is that this one has a love story. So I am all in, all in. I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. I definitely will keep in mind that after this one, we'll, we'll keep my eyes open in terms of how the rest of the series works out. I wanted to ask about King Endings because I was talking with Tiny from Tower Junkies about 
just being along for the ride with King and just being along for the journey. However, sometimes, especially with writer types like ourselves, when you actually visualize the blueprints and the the way the house is built and how the yeah. sausage is made, sometimes following along on that journey is immensely difficult. And so I wanted to ask, was there ever a King ending that was so unsatisfying it kind of ruined the story for you? Or are you always able to just cherry pick and enjoy what you enjoyed and set what you didn't like in a different pile? There's two books I can reference. One I actually really like, Bag of Bones, which I think is a really, really good book. But the ending for that book kind of tries to summarize it in a neat wee bow. And I just don't think it works. I just don't think it gets there. I think it would be actually better if it just sort of had a, a lighter touch to it. It feels a bit clumsy. And the second one is one we've mentioned is End of Watch. Um, one of my big grievances with that book is the ending because, you know, we've had three books with Hodge and um, the bad guy character and that. What's his name? Brady. And this idea of them coming together in book three is all about this journey of getting these two characters to come together for a final clash. And it's a paragraph, you know, where Hodge beats Grady is a paragraph, maybe a sentence long. And you're just like, that's what, you know, I was I was enduring end of watch reading that until then. And I think I closed the book and said, that's it this sucks you know, <laughs> for me because uh that's it and i normally like king endings you know i don't have this problem i know that's a common thing people say king can't do an ending i don't have that problem at all i think he does great endings but in that book oh it was just so it was so like the drive you, know, you talk about going on this journey all the energy seemed to have gone into the journey to get the characters to this one spot and nothing was given to the actual confrontation. And I understand that myself. Like I've just finished writing a book. Uh, I wrote an entire novel in like five weeks and, and six days. And like, I would not publish that book as it is because I read in the final act of that book, I can tell that I'm writing to get to the end to get the book finished and it needs more redraft so I can get that sort of emotional kind of ending that readers will need and I would need as an as a emotional reader to feel satisfied. Very good. I agree with you on bag of bones but for different reasons mine was pure trauma like <laughs> that was the worst stephen king ending i've ever read in my life only because it was just pure trauma so moving on yeah that it is close to the bone that book is i i think why it's so traumatic is it's not that traumatic for most of that book and then when the trauma happens it's like wow why am i well, where did this come from? <laughs> Correct, sir. Oh, my God. You're right. It's a very slow burn of a book. I was really enjoying how he referenced Daphne du Maurier for it because I'm a huge fan of Rebecca. It's one of the best gothic novels of all time. I am yeah, obsessed. I right. I adore it. And that was a huge inspiration for Bag of Bones. So I was like, this is going to be the best book ever. And then there's a, there's a lot of I was actually fine with the older man, younger girl thing, but a lot of people were put off by it and call it King's Midlife Crisis book, which I don't know about that. But then at the very end, we get just the most horrific crime that happens. And yeah, so for yeah. that reason, Bag of Bones is incredibly tainted to me. Subjectively, personal trauma. <laughs> 
No, it is. It is. Like, I think I, you know, I, I read that section. I know perfectly. And anyone who's read that book knows what that section is. And it is absolutely harrowing. But for me, I sort of justify it by that's a mirror that King's showing about the time of those, you know, the time of that decade and what people had to endure. And he's not shying away from showing people actually went through that and probably worse. You know, but it's awful for the reader. It's awful for anyone who's invested in that book as you get, because it's just so dark. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's as dark as Pet Cemetery. It's it's some of his darkest stuff. Yes. Oh my gosh. Maybe the darkest for me. It It is yet to be topped as like one of the darkest things I've ever read from King thus far. You did bring up End of Watch again, which I'm so glad because I wanted to get your thoughts as such a veteran King reader on this character of Holly Gibney and the spotlight she's receiving. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not massively interested in Holly Gibney. I mean, um, if it bleeds. I did read that because I don't know. I Normally, I'm trying to keep in order. Um, so I am so... And I haven't read like later or Billy Summers and like that because I'm trying to read in order. But I read If It Bleeds and um, the one of the stories that stood out for me the most wasn't hers. It was the the rat, the story. Which I really liked it. But If It Bleeds, I actually really am a big uh, fan of The Outsider, which Holly is in. And If It Bleeds feels like a smaller minute version of The Outsider. If you've read those books and you'll know why. And I have no problem with her in The, in the Outsider. I think she's a, she's a good character in it. But she's not someone that I'm like, I'm going to buy a book to read Holly Gibney. I'm going to buy a book because it's Stephen King's next one sort of thing. Uh, I'm not overly invested in her as a character. Uh, I feel I don't have any problems with her. Uh, I know maybe so, I know there's sort of people feel that, you know, she has been misdiagnosed in the way that she's written by King, but I don't, I wouldn't know enough about the subject matter to say that I find that. I just, that's, that's my thoughts on it. I gotcha. It took me a while. At first, when you meet her in Mr. Mercedes, and then again in Finders Keepers, barely, she's barely in that one. Barely in Mr. Mercedes too, if you think. Yeah, you're right. You're right. She's very neurotic and kind of twitchy and manic and, slightly forgettable and then i was just sort of curious as to why she was getting this big spotlight but once she did i was like i feel i don't know for sure but it's as if king is putting a spotlight on people healing from mental illness or trying to make a go of normal life with all of these adversarial brain things going on i don't know that's pure conjecture it's speculation for sure i don't know but i get that the progress of her becoming a really savvy detective and seeing a therapist and she evens out quite a bit. She stops smoking. She tries to be as normal and healthy and take care of herself as possible. So I kind of like that that is a large part of her character. But other than that, I'm the jury's kind of still out. It's heads, heads or tails. I'm like, sometimes I really like her. And I was like, oh, it's cute, Holly. Let's let's go. Let's do this. And mm. other times I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like, I'm not against her. I don't hate her. And I actually like her. And when I read her passages and like The Outsider, I enjoy them. But I'm not going to like, I want to buy a Holly Gibney book, if you know what I mean. That That's not like driving me. It's not like. The Shining, where I'm like, I'm going to buy The Shining because the Torrances are in it. You know, I am solely sort of like, I love those characters and I would buy them. You know, so that's the sort of place I'm at with them. But King always has this interesting thing where he gives a, a character a great sort of power 
like Duddits in um, Dreamcatcher, which has he has all these telepathic powers and is able to bestow them on his friends. But he also has this weird sign of fixation on taking something away or making them sort of like it be different away to the social norms. And it's just it's something that's been in all of his career. Like even the Dark Tower, we're talking, there's a character in it, there's a young boy who draws and he's able to conjure things out of, you know, the fabric of existence just by what he draws, but he's speechless and he's sort of, I don't think he's, there's any sort of special needs there. I think it's because he was captured at a very young age, so he's, he hasn't developed mentally as he should in, in parallel with his body sort of thing. So he's got a younger mind and a younger body. At least that's my read of it. I could be wrong. But King always sort of has that in his career of, of doing that. I don't know what it is. Uh, or where it's from tis a mystery for sure my next question is putting a spotlight on your top three or your top five stephen king titles well my top three are very generic so i don't think i should do them because this is the underrated podcast so i'll do my top <laughs> three uh, my top three underrated ones and i'll do them as the the underrated ones that i found in this one i really love christine nice i I read that book. I've only read it twice. So the first time I'd seen the film first, it was only the only one King book I've ever seen the film of first. And I liked the film better the first time. And then when I read the book again, like a couple of years ago in Marie Reed, I realized it's actually really a unique book because King obviously writes a lot of characters who had existed at different ages in their life. But he has never, other than Christine, he has never written a book about young men who are going out of high school or going and going into the real world he's written about men in college and women in college he's written about teenagers in high school and at lesser ages but he's never written other than christine about two two people that are going from that sort of comforted uh, insulated supported sort of uh, world of high school where even if it's bad you know everything what's going on you know your teachers it's recommended it's routined going into the world of becoming an adult he's never written a story like that apart from Christine and that part of Christine really appealed to me at seeing these guys being like so terrified of like I have no idea what I'm going to do am I going to go to college and be a success am I even going to be able to do that am I going to get a job that's going to be dead end what is going to happen to me we don't know uh and i i really like that kind of uh that story because that's what i felt like when i was 18 and sort of the idea of maturity and path was open and just a big fog in front of me i had no clue what i was doing so that book stands out for me as being one of my favorites for that reason and it's got a creepy bar in it (laughs) (laughs) very cool i haven't read christine yet but i'm ready i'm so excited because i just finished from a buick eight so I'm all about cars. I'm ready. I'm ready for another weird car. I've listened to your episode in it and you really love that book. And I completely agree with you. It's a great book. Yay. So. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I was I was very pleased by From a Buick 8. I was like, this is cool. I really like what he's cooking with here. So I'm ready for another weird car. Um, second one I'd pick is Firestarter. Ooh. Um, I really love Firestarter. I think there's just, it's just, I just really enjoyed reading it. I thought it's a great book. It does share parallels to the Deadstone with uh, Johnny Smith and the female character Sarah that he has in it and between Andy and Vicky. I feel that their romance is very similar, but um, the book King just goes in a different way with it. And um, uh, I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy Charlie McGee and I enjoy the shot. I enjoy how 
how ineffective the shop are, how silly they are. <laughs> like there's a bit in it where Charlie's like burning the world down and there's this agent who's just like, well, I'm going to leave now because he's like, <laughs> I'm not getting, you know, and it's just, it, it's sort of like this big, massive, you know, company that's being supported with all these millions and billions of dollars. And they're just so rubbish at their job. It's just quite hilarious in some ways. So I, I enjoy Firestarter a lot. And the other one's Desperation. Okay. Mm-hmm. I love Desperation. I think it's a great underrated book. And I feel that it is King's attempt at a mummy story. Nice. <laughs> so it is. I think it's a very, very uh, thickly veiled attempt at like, as I say, King doesn't do universal monsters much, but this whole idea of this entity that is buried in a desert in Nevada and has been excavated in a tomb and all this stuff and it possesses people and, and the bodies it possesses slowly rot sounds to me like a mummy story. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so excited to read that now. I did have a question because I have copies of both Desperation and The Regulators. So what is that about? Are they twinsies? Are they supposed to be kind of red tandem or... I think, well, yeah, understandable. You can be confused by it. I don't <laughs> think you have to read them in tandem. I do think you can read one and, you know, forget it, you know, and have reads between them. I think my memory serves. What I know about it was King was pulling into his driveway and he was toying with some idea and he'd written Desperation and he thought about bringing back Richard Bachman, who had was his persona and who had passed when he got uncovered and this idea of like, I could take these characters from desperation and do like a uh, mirror slant world on it. So the, all the characters have the same names, but some of them that are in desperation become, who have big roles become small roles and vice versa. And some of them actually have personality changes and things like that in regulators and things like that. So it's a very weird, <laughs> a very weird kind of setup, but um I wouldn't say don't read them. Oh, that sounds nuts. I'm here for it. I love the crazier it sounds, the more I want it. It is so crazy. (laughs) Irregulars is a very, very crazy story. Oh, I'm so excited. I I love Nutballs books. It is very Nutballs. I don't know if it's any, if it's good because it's crazy. (laughs) I will say that now there, there is problems in that book in regulators i would say there's problems in it but desperation for me i really enjoy i have two more questions left for you this one is really fresh newborn spring chicken don't know if it'll land well but we'll have fun with it okay if you were forced to be stuck in any stephen king setting it could be a city or an actual home or anything Stephen King setting related which city town house would you pick Oof, that's a good question you know well, well you can have more than one <laughs> the 13 of me is like put me in Salem's lot because I'm ready for those vampires <laughs> <laughs> you know because that's my favorite one and that's just it oh but there isn't like there's none that are really nice are there <laughs> sadly no <laughs> You know, I am a big, 
I am a big Jim McKee fan. I'd love to go and like feel inspired. And, and I also love going to Florida and love visiting America. And I've been down to the Keys and they're beautiful. So yeah, sitting there and I, if I could bring my laptop or typewriter or pen and paper and I could I, I could write a couple of classics like Edgar Fremantle with his painting, then sure, I'll go do that. That's the setting I want to be in. Oh, love it so much. I will join you. I will join you on Duma Key. And then I will drive north, yes, to North Carolina because I'm going to hang out at Joyland. Yeah, yeah. Joyland would be a good one too. I was just thinking that would be cool. I do like theme park. Oh, me too. The one I will not go to at all is the Overlook. Yeah, like, yeah. Like there is a part of me that wants to be there, but I completely understand the Overlook appeal of going into that place because there's just something about it that's just who doesn't like a haunted house <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know you know it's just something you know it, there is a reason they are like the tent pulled in horror is haunted house stories or haunted places but yeah i wouldn't go there i would happily take a photo or two outside but i am so freaked out by by overlook 100 percent. mrs massey just did it for me not a fan i have actually i've me and my wife we stayed a night in the stanley where he got the idea for the overlook and I wouldn't I wouldn't have a bath in that in the bath in our place. So I wouldn't for the reason of I remember the image of the Stanley Kubrick film. And there was freaky things that happened while we stayed there. Um because our room our room was weird because it was there was a you went down the end of a corridor and there was a door and it unlocked into another hallway that only had two doors branching off of it. One was our room and the other was someone else's. And at one point in our stay, that room, the someone else's room was open. The door was left open just a crack. <gasps> and no one was in there. No one, like no one was staying there. But the door had obviously been left open or had opened itself. And I went in briefly and I thought, I'm not looking in the bathroom. So I left. <laughs> the hotel's freaky. Hold the phone. That's one of my favorite American colloquialisms, meaning give me more details on when you stayed at the Stanley. Uh, that was in 2019. That was just before the pandemic. It was the last holiday my wife and I were on. So it was, we ended up doing like a 7,000 mile road trip across uh, America, various states in America um, for a month. We didn't have like anything booked. We, we would just drive to wherever we wanted to go and then find a hotel at night and just stay there. And I, that's what started me on the reread. I had the copy of The Shining with me. We actually landed in LA and we ended up driving to Albuquerque because we're fans of Breaking Bad. Nice. And we did a wee tour there. And I was like, why don't we go north to you know Colorado? I've always wanted to see it. I've always wanted to see the Rockies. And then I started reading uh, The Shining in Boulder because we were staying there. So I read the Boulder chapters there and then I read the rest of the book in the Stanley Hotel. Oh my gosh, amazing. It was, it was, it was great. <laughs> and then... And then the world shut down. <laughs> yeah, right. You guys really lived life before it all went down the proverbial toilet. I'm so glad you're such a Breaking Bad fan because I was born in Albuquerque. That's where I'm from. Oh, right, right. I love, love Breaking Bad. It's such an amazing show and it's so beautifully shot. So Albuquerque is, I think, the deserts are just beautiful. Totally. It is one of the reasons why I really like the Gunslinger so much. If you want a really good horror western book, I'd recommend Jonathan Jan's Dust Up Fairy Like the Gunslinger Vibe, that, that single book. Yeah, it's good. My last question for you, Jamie, is if you had the opportunity to get a Stephen King book signed, and it could only be one, 
which title would you have him sign? It would be The Shining. I have the original book that I bought when I was 13 and it's, you know, it's fallen apart and it's bent, twisted and, and it actually has writing in it because I ended up waking up one night when I was a very, when I was a kid with an idea for a story and I wrote in the back of it, but I'd have him sign it because that started me as a reader. I didn't read before Stephen King. He made me a reader with his book. So I have to have that sign. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. That's so precious. It probably has hundreds of those stories. But what my theory is when I ask that question to other constant readers, what I've noticed is that it's always the first one. It's always the first title that started the King journey for the most part. There are a couple outliers, but for the most part, it's always the first one, which is such a special, special sentiment. I think it's just because it's unlike any other author or unlike very few authors, you know, you have some authors who release a book every 10 years and that's it. But he has such a world, such a universe of books, you know, and they're all connected. So that first book is like opening the door into this universe of King. Um, so you're unbelievably thankful for having found him oh so beautiful i couldn't agree more for sure all right i think that is all we have thank you so much for participating and being a wonderful guest and such a king expert and king fan can you tell everyone where they can find more of you um you can find me on instagram at jamie.stuart.33 um where i promote my books and promote other people's books that I read. And that's where I hang out. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jamie. It was such a great time chatting King with you. I love your expertise. I love your insight. So please come back to the show very soon. Anytime, anytime. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you all so very much for listening to part two of my interview with the esteemed Jamie Stewart. I had such a blast with Jamie and cannot wait until his return. I gotta find a super amazing king work for us to tag team. It's definitely going to happen. I promise, promise Mr. Stewart will return soon. So for those of you who are interested in Jamie's writing, please head over to Amazon UK and type in his name to get your hands on his previously released horror publications, as well as visit Horror Oasis to check out the Books That Shine blog to learn more about the recently reviewed King novels and how they open up a totally new door to a brand new horror title that will accompany the King novel perfectly. I love it so much. I had such a great time sifting through Jamie. Jamie's blog, so please make sure you spend some time with the books that shine. Thank you all so much for hanging out with me. If you haven't already, I would love it so much if you could share the show with a friend. Help keep the show going. Helps give me that extra fuel to power through. It would mean the world if you would say something nice and grant us that five stars so we can reach more King readers and new readers of King and preach our holy message. Upcoming in the next week or so, I will hopefully have completed, we'll see, Wizard and Glass. I might decide to split it up into two parts. It is a thick one, so I think we might have to go that route. 
part one of Wizard and Glass and part two to accompany it not too long after. I'm so enjoying myself so far, guys. I, oh, I, I'm very happy. Um, Wizard and Glass is really, I don't know, it's providing a lot of joy right now. So I'm very excited to share all of that with you in the next few weeks. So stay tuned. I promise I will make haste as much as I can. Soon we will be together to discuss Wizard and Glass. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening to the show, supporting the show, giving us a five star. I love you, love you, love you. Wherever you are in the world, please make sure you're taking care, be safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.